would take your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah 41, Isaiah chapter 41, as we continue on in the, the book of comfort, the second half of Isaiah. Uh, including today, I have six Sundays, six sermons, well, 12 sermons, I guess, if you want to think of it that way, uh, before my sabbatical begins. Uh, thank you for your support and encouragement. Uh, I mention it primarily because I know... Uh, Few of you were confused about the date. Uh, we'll we'll say more as it gets closer, but uh, you got me for six more Sundays. I'll leave it at that for now. Um, hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east? Whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet had not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldiering is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away. And the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights, and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive, I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. 
do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know? And beforehand that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are, you are good and you are glorious and you are majestic and you are our God. Help us to hear your words. Help us to hear the comfort and everything else that you intend. We ask all this in Jesus' great name. Amen. What happened to comfort, comfort my people? We've got one from the east and north rampaging and pillaging. We've got God boldly challenging idols to do things that they can't do. Where is the comforting God of Isaiah 40? And you already know, don't you? He's still here. And not just in verses 8 through 20, you are seeing an additional side of him because he's talking to two audiences here. The God who said, comfort, comfort my people is also talking to those who are not his people, not yet anyway. In verses 1 through 7, 21 to 29, God is talking especially to the nations, the, the Gentiles, all those who are not Jews, God's covenant people. Notice verse 1, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Everyone from coast to coast, listen up. Because we, we need to know this. We all need to know this. The God who can comfort is also a holy God, an awesome God, the creator and Lord who demands loyalty, a supreme God who is insulted by imitations and substitutes like idols. Those who know that can find comfort in him. And those who do not know that will knowingly or not continue to provoke his anger, a justified anger at those who've rebelled against him. And what should we do in light of that? We should realize that we are poor in spirit, that we were powerless to change on our own, and that running to an awesome God is a whole lot better than running from him, better than running to an idol. It's true for God's people. It's true for those who are not God's people, not yet God's people. Three points this morning. The first one is this, an awesome God, an awesome God in verses one through seven. <clears throat> if God is all comfort, all comfort, nothing else, well, then life is good and I can just pray to my divine vending machine when I want and I'll be fine. That's not who God is. No, he is holy. He is an awesome creator and he does not like it when his creatures forget him or insult him. And while there is still hope for forgiveness, for relationship with him, our starting point is this. 
Our God is a consuming fire, as Hebrews says. He is holy. He is awesome. Here's how he says it. Verse 1 of chapter 41. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Now, is God calling the nations to find the same renewed strength as God's people as we looked at last chapter at the very end of the chapter? No. He is telling them, you better be strong if you want to face my judgment. He is acting as judge and jury in these verses, announcing the nation's guilt, asking them to defend themselves in court. And then in verse 2, he describes the sentence or the punishment who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. No name, no specifics about this one from the east. Some people think it's Cyrus who wouldn't come for another 150 years or two empires after Assyria, the present-day enemy of Isaiah of Israel. Or is it another enemy from the east and the north, as it says in verse 25, which is where every enemy seemed to come from back then? Regardless of what king it is, who is ultimately in control? Is it the king himself, Cyrus or someone else? Or is his heart in the hand of the Lord so that God can move it this way and that, as Proverbs 21.1 says? Look with me at verse 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? Who is it? God answers his own question. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. God is omniscient and omnipotent. He's all-knowing or all-wise. He's also all-powerful. Because he's all-powerful, he demands respect, fear, reverence, awe. And to ignore all that is, is simply foolish. Look at verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. They, they get it, you might say. And so how do they continue to respond? Verse 6, everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer strengthens, it doesn't say that, it's implied, strengthens him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldiering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. What are they doing? Doing something that's understandable. They realize the one who is ultimately coming behind all of this, he is strong. And so they try to strengthen themselves. We, we, we can deal with this. We can do it. We can withstand this. Oh, what a pointless solution. They don't humble themselves because they don't realize that this one who is big and awesome is mighty. He is also kind, gracious, comforting. He is Jesus strong and kind, as I said last week. He's the God of Psalm 62, verses 11 and 12. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. It's the God of Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11, which if you Bible is laid out the same way as mine, it's just on the other page here. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. 
He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. We have to realize this God is not simply soft and cuddly. This God is not simply awesome and terrifying. He is both. He is strong and kind. He is vengeful yet gentle. Vengeful to his enemies, gentle to his own. Powerful yet loving. Powerful yet showing steadfast love. Hesed is the Hebrew word. Covenant loyalty. The love that will not let me go. Our vision of God needs both of those facets and more. You know, if you underestimate his awesomeness, if you think that God will forever turn a blind eye to sin, that sin is no big deal, you're wrong. Sin is cosmic treason against the creator of the universe. And it is usually, I want to say always, but I'm leaving myself a little room to hedge my bet here. It is usually a crime against your neighbor, your fellow image bearer. God is angry when pagan nations persecute his people, thump their chest and say, look how great we are. Because God is the one who caused all those things. And because God's creations are harmed in the process. And even if you can find a so-called victimless sin, one, God's honor is still offended. Two, you may cause another one of God's children to sin by your carelessness. And three, Most sins get worse over time. Four, I'm not sure there is a victimless sin. But if you find a so-called victimless sin, it usually leads to worse sins. Pornography usually leads to lying, and it usually leads to something worse than that, unless it's checked. God is holy. God is mighty. God is angry when we sin. And yet, God is kind, loving, compassionate, comforting, gentle. Do you know that God? Has his kindness made you kind? Has his kindness drawn you to him? If not, we'll get to know that side of him more in just a moment. But again, God's people, those who are not yet God's people, both need to know that the God who longs to be gracious is also a consuming fire, an awesome God. Next, we see this. We see, secondly, a helpless idol. A helpless idol. An awesome God, a helpless idol. In verses 21 through 29. Because our God is an awesome God, so awesome, he can be scary, right? And that fear can tempt us to run from God, to run from God into the arms of another Savior who will inevitably be a lesser Savior. Come back to that in a second. Notice first the courtroom language of verses 1 through 7. It's back in this section. Now there's good news in the middle, verses 8 through 20. That's where we're going to close. But first, notice how God examines the alternative, the alternatives. It's almost like you can hear him say, sure, I am scary. Idols are not. I can see how you might think that's a better approach. But let's think harder, shall we? Verse 21, God begins, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the God of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. I believe them is their idols, by the way, at the beginning of verse 22. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, 
that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Verse 23 again, I think shows he's talking about false gods or idols. God is somewhat open-minded here, right? I mean, hey, I'll admit if these little statues that you made, I'll admit that these are gods if they can, you know, do the things gods can do. Predict the future, for example, the same way I can. What do you think? Can these gods of foreign nations, whom Israel sadly worshipped throughout their history, can they predict the future? Are they gods? Verse 24, behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. They can't do what I can do, God says. Verse 25, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortars, as the potter treads clay. That's what I can do, God says. I have kings in the palm of my hand. I'm omnipotent. How about you, false gods? Can you do that? Can you even foresee that, predict that? Verse 26, who declared it from the beginning that we might know? And beforehand, that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. And then he concludes in the final two verses, idols are nothing. What are idols? Back then, they were wood or stone, gold or silver or something similar. They were images that supposedly represented a powerful God, small g. Now the truth is, God's image bearers, you and me, have more power than those statues. They were just man-made little things, right? But, but think deeper. Why did they have idols? They thought they could trust them to do something, to make it rain, to make the crops go, to pr protect them, to whatever. Idols then and now. Then and now. Idols are something we trust instead of God. Something we trust more than God. And idols can be intrinsically good things before we make them into something that they're not. Like what? Money. Is money bad? Would you say that if somebody handed you a large check right now? Especially if you had a large need. What does the Bible say? Does it say money is evil? Does it say the love of money? is the root of all kinds of evil, 1 Timothy 6.10. Loving money might make you discontent with God's provision. It might make you greedy. It might make you rude, ruthless, unprincipled, or a host of other things, right? If you love or trust money to fix your problems, whether you're rich or poor or middle class, then you may stop trusting God to meet all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Right? And at that point, money has become your idol. And idols, my friends, are helpless. They're empty. They're nothing. They're a delusion, it says in verse 29. They're a lie. How are they a lie? More money will make you secure. It will save you from worry. 
Will it? Won't you just worry about losing it and then needing to make more of it? Now, money's an easy example, but maybe it's not your idol. What is? Ask yourself this. I will be okay when this happens, when I get this, when I do this, when he or she likes me. Also ask yourself, my worst nightmare would be, what'd you fill, the, what'd you fill in the blank with? It's probably your idol. Israel was weak and helpless, so their idol became power and independence. I'm sure they had others, but that's one. Power, independence, a, a king like David with a sword in his fist. And God had promised that. But he also promised a suffering servant. By the time the first century AD rolled around, a week before the first Easter, most Jews wanted the mighty king a whole lot more than the meek king who would suffer. Their distortion, their exaggeration of the Messiah had become an idol. And the idol of their imagination did not deliver what they wanted because that's what idols are. They're figments of our imagination, delusions, nothing, just empty wind. And if God is scary, and if idols can't help us, then where can we turn? We can turn to God's promises. And God has promised that in Christ, we will be a pitied and protected people. That's our third point this morning, a pitied in protected people. You see it in verses 8 through 20. Now there's a clear shift from verses 1 through 7 to verses 8 through 20. Verses 1 through 7, the nations are in view, the Gentiles. And then verse 8, he says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. <clears throat> God is now talking to his people. And his people, though they are pitiful to be pitied on their own. With God, they are a protected people. What does that mean? What does it look like to be both pitied and protected? Well, I have four subsections here. The first one, protection promised, enemies scattered, obstacles conquered, needs met, and more. If you want the verse references and all that jazz, follow along or look in the bulletin. But first, 3A, protection promised, verses 8 through 10. We already read verse 8. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 now. He's talking to Israel, Jacob, the offspring of Abraham. And he says, You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand starting to sound like Isaiah 40, Book of Comfort stuff again, right? God has chosen them, according to verse 8. Now, I am happy to discuss all the implications of God choosing his people another time, but two brief things. One, we had a Sunday school class on this very recently. Thank you, Joseph. Two, the doctrine of election, God choosing us, as well as the related doctrine of predestination should always According to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the playbook of Presbyterianism, it should always bring about humility. In other words, the real question is not, why did God 
choose Israel. It's why did God choose anyone on this forsaken planet? And especially why did he choose me? God chose a people for his own possession. Oh, how that should comfort us and humble us. And to that chosen people, he says, amongst other things, fear not. Fear not, do not fear. It's the most frequent command in the Bible. Why? Because he promises to uphold his people with his own righteous right hand. Now, God the Father does not have actual physical hands. But the next verses look as if a mighty hand has intervened for God's people. That's where we see 3B, enemies scattered. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Behold, all who were incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. Verses 1 through 7 scare us a little bit, right? We see the awesome God and all his glory. God is stirring up a king to rampage against the nations. Then you read verses 11 and 12, and you're starting to get the fuller picture, aren't you? God is, God is ultimately going to conquer rebellious people, a people who are opposed to his people. Now, that's not because God's people are always better, nicer, more morally upright, it's certainly not because we're more deserving. No, it's simply because God's people are his. God wants us to know that. He wants us to feel secure. Verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. God helps us. God is our helper. Yes, he is. It's Second time it's mentioned it in this passage, there'll be one more. It's a common phrase in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is ezer, like Ebenezer, Eben Ezer in 1 Samuel 7, 12, the stone of help to remember that God helped Israel. It's also the same word as Genesis 2, 18, which we've talked about in Sunday school recently. Woman is a helper, fit for man, corresponding to his op opposite, his complement. Is that... Is that demeaning? Hardly. To be the one who bears God's image, who compliments and helps man, God's image bearer, subduer of the earth, who, who serves alongside him, that is not demeaning. It is a place of great honor. Men, Mother's Day is approaching. We should take note of all the women in our lives and honor them accordingly. But again, God helps Israel. He scatters her enemies. As he promised to do all the way back in Genesis 12, I will curse those who curse you, he said to Abraham, or Abram at that time. God's people, what does this mean? God's people are not simply fending for themselves in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. God is looking out for you, just like he promised to look out for his people in the Old Testament. And after enemies scattered, we see this, 3C, obstacles conquered, verses 14 to 16. Verse 14, fear not, you worm, Jacob. <laughs> okay, did God just call his Old Testament people a worm? I don't have any fancy theological explanation to make this sound like a compliment. This is what you think it is. God is saying we are like 
worms. Still true, I'm afraid, for his New Testament people. We are helpless, small, weak, despised on our own. That's what we are. God's people have a helper, as we've seen. Verse 14, fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Next, God says he's going to make his people a threshing sledge. What's that? It's a thing that threshes grain, separating wheat from chaff. I, I think, because I know more about football than I do about farming, amen? But I know that threshing sledges are big and mighty, especially this one. It's chopping down more than just wheat. Verse 15, behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. And you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. And the wind shall carry them away. And the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. What is this? If not an example of God's strength being made perfect in his people's weakness. Was this a promise of military victory for Israel? I don't think so. It's, it's too vague. To me, this looks like the meek. The worms, the meek inheriting the earth one day. Charles Barkley, the basketball player, once said, the meek shall inherit the earth, but they won't get the ball from me. Now, he was joking a bit irreverently, but isn't that kind of true? Meekness doesn't usually equal success in an earthly sense. Not in sports, not in business, maybe not in politics, maybe not in a thousand other areas. So aren't God's people tempted to say, you know, meekness is for losers and I want to win. Aren't we tempted to take matters into our own hands? Aren't we tempted to think, unless I grab this with my own two hands, I'll never get what I think I need. I can't trust God to give me what I think I need. But it's not the picture you see in the scripture, especially not next, because after obstacles conquered, we see this, 3D, needs met and more. Not the most eloquent point I've ever written, but needs met and more, and then some. And not because God's people take what they want in this dog-eat-dog -dog world. And before we read verse 17, I want to read Isaiah 40, verse 27. We read it last week. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Don't we sometimes feel like this? God has forgotten me. My way is hidden. My rights are disregarded by God. The judge of all the earth has taken a day off. He has stopped being just and righteous today. I don't say it like that. Sometimes we act like that. Sometimes we feel like that, don't we? But feelings can deceive us. They can shift in a moment. We need something more solid. Feelings can deceive us because this is not how God is, is he? Verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Do you need water? God seems to say, oh, I'll give you water. I won't forget you. In fact, I'll give you water 
and then some water that overflows. I'll give you rivers. I'll give you fountains, verse 28. In fact, I'll transform the wilderness, the the desert into a pool, into springs of water. I'll also put trees there. Lots of them, verse 19 says. Now, we could read all of these, the myrtle, the olive, the cypress, the plain, the pine. I don't have a green thumb. Scholars and scientists say these trees would never be planted next to each other. They don't thrive in the same conditions. And all of that, quote, enhances the idea of a wonder-working act of God. And isn't that what God says himself in the next verse, verse 20? He's going to do all that, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Don't think for a moment that mere humans, even powerful ones, smart ones, can do this. Don't think for a moment that idols can do this. This is God and God alone. Only he can protect a pitiful people. Only he can take a pitiful people with nothing in their hands to bring, spiritually speaking, not having a righteousness of their own, as Philippians 3 says. Only he can take a people like that and protect them so that they have a divine promise, so that their enemies are scattered, their obstacles are conquered, their needs are met, and more. And is any of this less true for you than it was for Israel? Hasn't your God promised to supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus? And if you're a Christian, haven't you seen this happen? Haven't you seen your awesome God do awesome things in your life? The house you got when your offer wasn't the best. The job you got that you can't believe you got. The woman who somehow said yes. Wise man once said, all men marry up. We are not denying that God has allowed hard stuff in your life. Not for a minute. That's true. It's why we're so prone to doubt, why we're so prone to run, so quick to trust in anything else. Just promise me salvation for a second. And after all, it is hard to believe that an awesome God can also be kind. Why we're tempted to run. But when we see the full picture of who God is, then we finally see the wisdom in running to God instead of running away from Him. When we see our awesome God, when we see the God who is a consuming fire, when we see Him up close and personal, we also see Him as a loving Heavenly Father who will use all of that might and strength to move heaven and earth to help us to give good gifts to his children, to meet all of their needs and more. C.S. Lewis famously said, he's not safe, but he's good. So run to him. Run to your good God. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us to taste and see that you're good. Help us to taste and see all the rich complexity of one who is larger than life, greater than self, lasting forever, the one who created us in all of our complex emotions, the one who created us in this whole vast world. 
the one who created things like flowers and colors. He could have created a world without beautiful things, but you didn't. You gave us beauty and goodness, and you gave us, most of all, your son Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.